I'm really excited about where we're heading as a church with these, the latest teaching series. We're in the third week, the third message in this teaching series on the book of Exodus. And Exodus is the amazing story of how God delivered the nation of Israel from the bondage of Egypt and brought them into new life in Him. And I think for us to begin, I'm just going to begin where we've began the last couple weeks. And that's hammering the notion, the reality that the book of Exodus is a small story within a bigger story. And that bigger story is the story of how Jesus, our liberator, a real character in history, by the way, not just some fairy tale or a good thing to person to think about or, or to mimic uh, the story of his life. Jesus was an actual person in history. And the bigger story of the gospel, the whole book of the Bible, both, both the Tanakh and the New Testament, it's a story how, of how Jesus broke into our bondage How Jesus cared and was concerned about our bondage and came and lifted us up, liberated us. So as we begin to uh, wander into our passage today, we need to look at it as a snapshot, uh, as a, a picture of how we should respond to Jesus, our Redeemer. God unveils himself to Israel. We see how he goes about liberating, and we look at that and grow and learn from it. It's kind of like my little boy Gabe on the football field. First weeks of ever playing football. He's out there learning how to hit the gap, learning how to straight arm the guys that are trying to take his flags off him. He's only six years old, so they're only moving so fast. But the Exodus text text for us today does exactly that. How are we to learn unless we have a place to go and get instructed? And this text for us is it today. We just stand. We have a ton, a ton to read. So if you need support standing like a cane or something like that, make sure you got it in your hand because guess what? We're going for it. Exodus 4.18 through uh, 5.21. It's a huge passage. These are the very words of God. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. And Jethro said, Go, I wish you well. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt. For all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife, his sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. By the way, if you want a good, uh, uh, an interesting place to go regarding your own study, look at Matthew 2.20 and how it is almost an exact representation, uh, conversely so, of this passage. And he took the staff of God in his hand, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I've given you the power to do, but I'll harden his heart 
so that he will not let the people go. Verse 22, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your first son. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah, his wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Yes, it applies to us today. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord said, so the Lord let him alone. And at that time, she said, a bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the signs he had been commanded to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down in worship. We're halfway there. Exodus 5, 1 through 21. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I, don't, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you're stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people, so that they keep working and pay no attention. Might want to underline that one. That's a core scripture for today. Verse 10. Uh, Actually, skip to verse 12. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to work with for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we're told make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You'll not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told you're not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials. 
and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Will you pray with me? This is your word. And uh, I've got no, no ability uh, to uh, be a messenger or an ambassador for you. You must speak, Lord. Uh, you have got to stand here and, and teach this family. And so we, all of us as a family, surrender ourselves to you and ask you. We look to you, Jesus, not to, uh, not to uh, anyone else, but we look to you, Jesus, who, who was the one who showered manna on the nation of Israel, who provided water for the nation of Israel, who, who went before the nation of Israel all their 40 days in the desert. And it's you we, we trust today. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. Okay, so in this point, in this point in history with the nation of Israel, anybody know how long that they had been stuck in Egypt? 400 years. Anybody in here been stuck before in life? Me, I have. I was trying to shortcut around the back of this building two years ago, stuck in two and a half feet of snow when I was supposed to be leading a band in practice and ultimately leading worship. It was a bummer. I couldn't go forward, couldn't go back. That stuck. The nation of Israel was stuck in Egypt. If you remember, it was Joseph who came to Egypt first, Genesis 39. It was used by God to save the people of Egypt and the surrounding countries from famine. It was during that time that Jacob, and, uh, who was later called Israel, and his ten sons moved to Egypt to live. The Israelites, in those early years, actually did pretty well. God's blessing was on them. They prospered. And they increased in number greatly, Genesis 47 says. This was the time in the nation of Israel where every man, every family just kind of did the best that they could, you know, because all that they had to follow were the oral traditions of their fathers passed down from generation to generation. They practiced circumcision because it was really an outward sign of an inward condition that they had belonged to God and that they belonged to the, the family or the father, their father Abraham. And they looked forward to the promises that God gave them and the prophecies that Israel spoke on his deathbed becoming a reality in them. They sought God like their fathers sought God. But remember, again, they had no written or recorded uh, history. Uh, No Tanakh, no uh, Pentateuch. It was written by the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible were written by Moses uh, later. And it's in the middle of this time of growing prosperity, really, for the nation of Israel. They lived in Goshen, the best part of Egypt. It was in the middle of this growing prosperity that the nation grew forgetful. Has that ever happened to you? A crisis in your life, God shows up, you make it through the crisis, and it's kind of like all things are good, back to normal. That's what happened with Israel. And you see, I love what Rod two weeks ago said about the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. He said, for God to get Israel out of Egypt, God needed to first get Egypt out of Israel. In fact, the heart of the exodus was not a change in locale. It was a heart change. It was an identity 
change. Going from being servants or slaves, the underlings of Pharaoh, to being raised up to be the children of God. And if we use that reality as a lens to peer through today at our tax, then the whole thing makes a, a lot more sense. You see the difficulty in the beginning, Pharaoh's raging, the plagues, the wandering, the real hunger. I mean, not just hungry for lunch hunger, but uh, we haven't eaten for several days hunger. The type of hunger that you see in your children's faces, hunger and thirst. Those were all things that God had perfectly doled out to the nation of Israel so that they became a Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God type of people. That was God's will. And so today for us, as we, we launch, we're going to have to get our running shoes on. As we launch into this tax, we see, uh, we shouldn't be surprised as we look Uh, and see that the first message that God in our text gives to Moses to deliver to Pharaoh uh, specifically and inadvertently to the nation of Israel is all about identity. Who are you? Who are you, little Israel? Underlings and slaves or firstborn children of God? Look at verse 21, would you, with me? I'm going to read it. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I'll harden Pharaoh's heart so that he'll not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you let my son go so that he may, he may worship me. But you refused to let him go, so I'll kill your firstborn son. Let me actually read it again as it's laid out in the Hebrew. Something like this. So I say to you, let my bane, which is the Hebrew word for son, let my bane go, so that he might labor for me. He spent a lot of time laboring for you. Let him go, and let him labor for me. But because you've refused, I will. Because you've ruined, I will. Ruin, I will destroy your, your bane, your firstborn son. Again, you ruin my firstborn son, I will ruin yours now. You torture, abuse, kill. You, uh, you do all sorts of things that shouldn't be allowed to be done to my firstborn son You eliminate their opportunity to come to me for life. And because of that, I will ruin yours. Yeah, baby. That's like a good coach getting up in the grill of the official, you know, on the field. That's a passionate, that's the voice of a passionate, not a passive father. That's a father that's, that's totally committed to the well-being of his firstborn son. A lover. You see, the message that God wanted to plant in Pharaoh's heart and the hearts of his people were really simple. Regardless of your circumstances, you're not forgotten. You're not a foreigner. You're not a slave. You're not forsaken. You're not the least. 
Your identity is not beaten and forlorn. No, you belong to me. And you will be called sons of the living God. And God would have us above the static hear that same message today, wouldn't he? Slave, no way. Forsaken, no way. And I don't care where, whether you were slaving yesterday. Slave, no way. You don't have to choose that. In this story, God, through Moses, delivered a beaten, tortured people from the hands of an oppressor. And for us, looking back to that story, it's a foreshadowing of the day that God himself would send a perfect son, he really did it, to be oppressed and beaten and tortured so that we might really be free, not just Sunday school Jesus free, but really, really free. Are you grateful? Yeah, I am too. Let's go back to the text. Verse 21. Israel is my firstborn. For Pharaoh, as you can imagine, this statement would be an immediate attack on his rights of possession regarding the Israelites. But for little slave Israel, could you imagine? Firstborns were heirs. I'm just going to say something right now. That, dis- that uh, distortion might happen all morning. Did a little bit in the first gathering. But Jesus, when he was teaching, had way more distraction than that. Little kids running at his feet, demoniacs going crazy, people needing healing. So I think that we can deal with that. Are we on the same page? Okay, fantastic. But for little slave Israel... That statement was a statement of belonging. In fact, I think about uh, the Abba's answer, folks, in this room. And there are many of you, folks that are plucking kids out of foster homes and adopting them. And I could just kind of imagine what it would be like for a child who's been rejected most of their life to have a mom and a dad come in and just say, I choose you. And I just don't want you to be adopted. I want you to know that you're chosen. And that's uh, what Israel experienced as they had God step into their bondage and say, I'm plucking you out of this thing, firstborn. Come on, you're coming with me. Psalm 89, 24 through 27 also gives us a little bit of a snapshot just for us now of what it means to be a firstborn. Follow me. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him and My name, in my name, his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I'll make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Who is that written to? David. Psalm 2, 6 through 8. I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy hill. I'll... Surely tell of the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, you're my firstborn son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. You see, 
firstborn son designation by God was not something that was just thrown out lightly. And although these passages that I just read were written way after the fact, way after the Exodus experience, what they do is they give us a snapshot of all the benefit, all the bonus of being firstborn. For the nation of Israel, it was new identity. And let me tell you, because I know many of you live according to your new identity, that when you get a new identity in your life or God speaks to you about who you really are, how he perceives you, and you begin to live according to it, it changes everything. It's a game changer. Are we on the same page? Two more things from this text. Look again at verse 21, chapter 4. You see in this exchange with God, Moses was told three things, wasn't he? We just hit the third, but the two first parts need to be mentioned. Number one, Moses was to perform the miracles before Pharaoh that God had put in his hand. That's actually what the Hebrew communicates, that the power had been given to Moses, and then that power was to manifest through a sign of humility. And that sign of humility was his shepherd's crook, his staff. Number two, that God had allowed Pharaoh's heart to be hardened so that he would not let Israel go. But I really want to be careful with this one. Let's make no mistake that this second piece of the text, regarding this second piece of the text, the Bible is really clear that Pharaoh's heart, his hardened heart, is not an anomaly. It's not a strange thing that happened in history. Every man and woman outside of God, guess what, has a hard heart. Scripture says it's a hard stone. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this about the heart of stone. God says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that lives instead of a heart that's hard. And what does this mean to us? I'll tell you. Outside of God extending mercy to us, we're left with only one option. A real hard heart. A heart closed to God. And our life choices can make that heart harder. In fact, in this room right now, there are probably several of you who are wondering about that. You feel like you've been rejected by God because your heart is just so hard. Your hard heart is how you were born. You need to humble, not look for a heart that's not hard any longer. You need to humble your heart before God and ask for his mercy. And he will take your hard heart and he'll change it and make it one that can receive and be full of him. I got to be careful here or we're going to get into a lot of trouble. So for God in the text that we're uh, wading into today, for God to allow Pharaoh's heart to be hard, was God allowing it to be, to remain just as it was. And this serves us today as a huge encouragement, really, that his help, 
is as real as the handshake that you received no more than 15 minutes ago from the person next to you. It's a real help if you'll call out for him. It's a real mercy that's offered to you, something that you don't deserve, something that can be had, something that will uh, lubricate and change your life. And we clearly see by both Moses, a man who needed much help, a man in many ways who is a type of Christ, the Christ who would come later. And Pharaoh is that mercy is the game changer. Ask him for it today. No matter where you are today, just feeling lost or close to God, just say, God, fill me with your mercy. Okay, our second major point today, a family, a father, a home. Anybody know who uh, Moses' father was? Who? Oh, sweetheart. You know, I couldn't remember either before I started preparing for this message. He's got the craziest name going. His name is Amram. Could you imagine growing up with that name Amram? Kind of be hard to go out to the playground. (laughs) Well, we find out that Moses' parents... Actually, you know, the the story of Moses' birth is in Exodus 2, 1 through 8, but it's, it's all the way... Uh, further down the road into Exodus 6, 20, that we actually get the names of his parents, Amram and uh, Yachbed is his mom's name. That's actually even be worse than Amram. <laughs> but where did Moses get his name? It wasn't his biological parents. It was, actually, it was actually the daughter of Pharaoh, as you remember the story telling us, who scooped him out of the water. You know, his parents weren't willing to let him drown in the Nile which was the command for all male-born sons in Egypt, uh, Jewish boys at that time, to be thrown in the Nile. She found him and pulled him out of the water and, and named him Moses, because that means I drew him out of the water. Well, where did Moses grow up? He spent his first years with his biological parents. He spent the next probably 38 or 37 years growing up in the palace of Pharaoh. And... What the scripture says about that time was that he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, becoming powerful in word and in deed, which simply means that he had a good mind and good physical capabilities, Acts 7, 20 through 22. During these first 40 years, obviously he received the best that Egypt had to offer regarding training. It might be the the Harvard or the Stanfords of, of our world. Like going to Ivy League, an Ivy League school on steroids. It would be easy to think that, that, that those were great years for Moses. But at the time of our story, Moses was 80 years old. Where did he spend the last 40 years of his life? Where was he trained? He was trained in the wasteland of Midian. Uh, and tutel- he had, was under the tutelage of hardship. Now, it might be for some of us in this room uh, like uh, an enjoyable thing to think about what life for 40 years out in the wilderness would be like. You know, you've got lots of time alone with God, pretty free from distraction, beautiful scenery if you like the desert. It could be kind of like a 40-year backpacking trip, but with sheep. And so there's Moses. But if you 
with some intellect, step back from the story and really look at the whole of the story, uh, we've got a different picture. I mean, Moses had a lot of hard things happen to him in his life. I mean, look at him. He was a separated from his family at the earliest age. I mean, really, his mom and dad were probably the ones that were best suited to really love him, and there he found himself in the courts of Pharaoh. And the courts of Pharaoh sound pretty good, but think about it for a second. Pharaoh was enslaving the Israelites. Moses was an Israelite. Pharaoh must have kept his eye regularly on him because of the elevated Uh, influence that Moses had garnered as a result of being included in Pharaoh's family. Well, we all know the story. He kills this Egyptian uh, taskmaster. He flees Pharaoh. Pharaoh tries to kill him. He becomes a fugitive. He leaves all his wealth behind in Egypt. And now he's wandering in the desert of Midian. Exodus 2.15 and beyond to 2.21 says that he met a wife, Zipporah, he had children. But I want to tell you that even in the midst of these things that should have given him joy, a reason to belong, a reason to rest, we see Moses wrestling. We could see it in Exodus 2.22, in the hour when his firstborn son was named, unlike Joseph, earlier in Egypt, who named his firstborn Manasseh, meaning God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house, Moses named his firstborn son Gershom, which means I'm a stranger. I'm lost in a strange land. You see, for Moses, the two main places that he spent his 80 years were Egypt and Midian. Both of them were in a fet. And that's the backdrop for this next portion of scripture that we're going to wade into, verses 24 and 26. Can we go there? I'll read it. Now it came about at the lodging place, at a lodging place, at a slumbering place on the way, that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Verse 25, then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. That's actually what the Hebrew says. She took it and threw it at his feet and said, you're indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. Verse 26. So he, God, let him alone. That's Moses. At that time, Zipporah said, you're a bridegroom of blood because of this circumcision. Well, we know that Moses... at this time, was being sent to Egypt with a message, don't we? He had a message to bring that people. But that message, beyond just being spoken like I'm speaking today, needed to be a message that Moses understood applied directly also to his life. So what's God do? He stops him right on his way to Egypt. It's almost as if God is saying to Moses, before you go back to Egypt, Moses, do you know who you are, Moses? You've been wandering for a long time. Do you know who you are, Moses? Who taught you about me, Moses? Are you just learning about me? Are you just a little, little, little one in me? You're a descendant of Levi, Moses. That's who your father is. That's the family that you belong to, belonging to the family of the firstborns, the family of God. Moses, don't neglect Don't devalue my commands. 
for their commands, their opportunity that apply equally to you as they apply to the rest of my people. Your sons are are part of my family because of your blood, the family of Abraham. So here we see Moses incapacitated and his wife Zipporah circumcising one of their sons and touching, throwing the circumcision at Moses' feet. And what happens? For Moses, life-changing. We see God extending mercy. We see God disciplining the one he loves. And the fact that God was willing to put him to death for the sake of circumcision could be taken first as a token to us of of how holy God is and and his commitment to his holiness. Uh, But it also should be taken as as God's invitation, God's uh, blessing, his, his open door to Moses to experience home to experience belonging, to experience something different than being a stranger, but to come like a homecoming. We can see this metamorphosis during this time in Scripture by just comparing the names of Moses' two boys. First one, we've already talked about it, Gershon. Stranger, lost one in lost land, strange land. But we don't see the name of Moses' second boy until all the way in Exodus 18. His name is Eliezer. And it means, God is my strength. So all of a sudden we see Moses going from displaced, lost, and a stranger to at rest, in God. And this picture of Moses tells us as God's community, really, a larger story, doesn't it? It's a story of a man who would one day offer his own blood as a sacrifice to redeem the world. A man named Jesus, despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Matthew 8.20 says that uh, he, he had nowhere to even lay his head, no home on earth. A stranger because he knew he was the son of God, the lamb that would be slain for the sins of the world. He is the Jesus that comes to us in our slumber, in our place of slumbering. He's the one that draws near not to harm or incapacitate, but to lift us up, to heal us, to to apply healing oil to our wounds and our brokenness and make us new. Will you let him in? Will you, will you have an open heart? Will you let the heart of flesh that, that God's given you be open to receive his healing, his promises? In the office, we... Uh, often get the opportunity to just hear what God's doing in the community. And this whole ministry training movement with Neil as kind of Moses is amazing to me. Any of you in ministry training, just raise your hands. Yeah, in the first gathering, we probably had 50 or or more people that were a part of that experience. If you've been a part of it, this text will hit home. 
says this. Let's just read it together, could we? The Bible is the story of God redeeming his kingdom, buying back his special people to live in his special place so that they can experience the blessings of his presence with them and his rule over them and be a blessing to the world. You know, we focus uh, a lot on what it means to be in the kingdom. Uh, The question today is, what's life like outside of the kingdom? Well, being outside God's kingdom would be a life away from God's people, obviously, away from God's place, away from his blessing, away from his presence and rule. This is Egypt. And it's all that Egypt stands for. The Hebrew word for Egypt, and Rod will do much better at pronouncing this Hebrew word, is Mitzrayim. And it means to be pressed in or walled in. It's really oppression. Well, who would lead a kingdom like that? Well, a man or woman much like we see in Pharaoh in our story, an intelligent, well-trained, kind of raised with the best, maybe a little wily, wealthy, many of the same characteristics that we sometime, sometimes look for in our, in our world leaders. You see, Pharaoh in many different ways represents the best that mankind had to offer. Similar to Goliath that we read about later on in the Bible. Kind of like, well, we could, you know, take our pick. Uh, Stephen Hawking's maybe in regards to intellect or Michael Jordan regarding to just physical ability, just uh, the best of all time, the type of people. That was a Pharaoh. But make no mistake. God doesn't want us today surprised by Pharaoh's life or by his responses to Moses that we'll read in just a moment. In fact, maybe the right response for us is to take the posture that I see you taking week after week after week. And it's this, to sympathize with Pharaoh's weaknesses. Because if we're willing to look at and examine our own lives, guess what? Me first. We see Pharaoh's weaknesses in ourselves. Weakness the weakness of Adam in the garden, of indecision, of fear, the need to perform, the need to show no weakness, to overcompensate, to hide, to lie. At best, our lives without God are off track. Like an essay written on the wrong topic. The scripture calls it laboring in vain, Psalm 127.1. And at our worst, that's our best, at our worst, we become or can become oppressive and maybe even diabolical. You see, our weakness is designed by God. As we stand outside of God's kingdom, we have no hope with our weakness other than to try to overcome it. But when we enter into God's kingdom, our weakness becomes the front row for God's activity. It's in our weakness that he manifests himself, just like Moses with his sign of weakness, the staff. This might be, for some of you who are interested, the reason why Moses responds as he does in this portion of scripture, that he has slow and faltering, unimpressive speech. And how we rectify that with a passage that we read earlier, which states that in Egypt, Moses was strong in word and deed. You see, I think that as Moses stood before God after 40 years in the wasteland, that 40 years and that picture of God caused him to uh, perceive that his words, his wealth of training at best were broken like leaning on a splintered staff. 
Let's pick up the passage and let's pick up the pace. Chapter 5, verse 1. Again, I'm leaving a lot of meat on this bone because quite frankly, we don't have the time to, to uncover all of it. There's just amazing, amazing truth to be gleaned from this passage. Chapter 5, verse 1. And afterwards, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go so that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said... Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. What's the first thing that you notice about this passage? If you want to cheat, you can go back to chapter 4, verse 21. Moses shows up in front of Pharaoh without his miracles. Now, what are we supposed to think about that? I'll tell you. Um, what's the problem with this? There's really no problem. God uh, doesn't hide his main character's imperfections uh, in, in the pages of Scripture. He actually brings them out because God is not stymied by any of our imperfections. But he works through them and glorifies himself by them. So Moses, in some ways, could be seen as botching his first response before Pharaoh. But God uses it anyway. And what's Pharaoh's response? It actually has three three parts. Here's the first part. Exodus 5.2 Who's the Lord that I should obey the Lord's voice to let Israel go? Who's speaking? Is it Pharaoh? Not really. It's the voice of pride and arrogance. It's the voice of the serpent in the garden. It's the voice of Egypt. The voice of life outside of God's kingdom. And that voice is still speaking today. And if you give it rain, if we give it rain, it will oppress and wall you in. The second response I don't know the Lord. Well, this is crazy. Because if you study Pharaoh's role in Egypt, one of his functions was to be a mediator between the pantheon of gods and the Egyptian people. So he would have been well aware that the Hebrews had a God. This is the voice of deceit and passivity. It's the voice of Adam. It's the voice of Egypt. Do you ever struggle with lying and passivity in your life? You've got to renounce it, run away from it. Don't be surprised by it, but just let it go. Leave it at Jesus' feet and turn your back on it. Number three, third response. Even if I did know him, Pharaoh says, I would not let Israel go. Egypt at this time was a world power. All the nations looked at Egypt and said, we would like to be like you. And guess what? Egypt's uh, economy was uh, totally dependent on, had become dependent on the slave labor of Israel. See, this is the voice of selfishness and greed. You say, today, God would have us understand that every one of us, at one level or another, has the ramblings and rages of Pharaoh bumping around the inside of us. 
And I think in many different ways it's that weakness that causes us to see our need, isn't it? I once heard it said that the, our, knowing our need is the greatest gift that we could have. We wouldn't be flying blind, you know, but we would know that we were really desperate and needy for God. So all of a sudden these catastrophes, these walls falling in experiences that we have in our own lives can be looked at as gifts or invitations for us to come to Him. Some of you in this room have said, I just wish God would speak to me. He might be speaking through your calamity. He might be using your calamity as an invitation to come to Him. We have mikvah up here. You know, I, I'm just about ready to, to close. And mikvah is not a magic thing. Uh, we firmly believe at Crossroads in the complete work uh, that was done at the cross by Jesus Christ, that you, you are forgiven, uh, that he bore in his body all the sins of the world and died once to those sins so that we could be forgiven. But guess what? Sometimes it's good to just put action to what you have going on inside of you. Some of you need to come forward today as we worship and just wash, just take the water, just say, wash my eyes, wash my mind, wash my heart. Jesus, I've, I've gone places with my feet that I shouldn't have gone. Just wash me, cleanse me, cleanse me from a guilty conscience. So keep that in mind. I won't be offended if you come up in the middle of the message. Nobody will pay attention to you. You just do business with God. Here's our last portion of scripture as we close. Turn with me to Exodus 5, 4. Please. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Go back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many. And you would have them cease from their labors. Verse 6. So the same day Pharaoh commanded taskmasters over the people and their foremen saying, you are no longer to give them the people straw to make bricks as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they're making previously, you shall impose on them. They will not reduce any of it because they're lazy. Therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men and let them work at it that they may pay no attention to these false words. This is oppression. This is what oppression feels like. Kind of like me stuck around the other side of the building. No going forward, no going back. Feeling like you don't have uh, any margin to even consider how to make your escape. But you know, Pharaoh's response isn't unique considering he's really, as a leader, looking at being on the verge of civil war and we all know what happens uh, when leaders are caught in the middle of civil uprisings. Remember, it was just 80 years ago. This needs to be a lens that we look through on this text, that the nation of Egypt was fearful, Exodus 1.10, of the potential that the Israelites had in opposing them. But what's striking about our final portion of Scripture today, especially in the backdrop of Exodus as a whole, is the picture, the snapshot that we get of oppression and how it works. 
And it's really important. Don't, don't disconnect right now. It's really important for us to see oppression for what it is. Because when we see oppression clearly, we see the areas of our lives that God wants to break into more clearly. You want to know God's perspective on oppression? He breaks it. He doesn't mess with it. He breaks it. And Isaiah 61 is a breaking passage. He says, it's actually Jesus' job description. When he stands up in the New Testament and reads scripture for the first time, it's Isaiah 61, which is amazing if you think about it. A different passage each, each week that they meet. And he steps up. And it's Isaiah 61, where it says that he came to set the captives free and release prisoners from their chains and proclaim the day of the Lord's favor. And then he ends it by saying, thus the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) Again, the response that God gives Israel in the book of Exodus is also the response family that he gives us today. I've indeed seen your misery, heard your crying out, I'm concerned about your suffering, so I've come down to rescue you. And this message is really, please hear me, is really going to be important in the future. You see, as much as we look at our lives uh, and like how they're, they're, they're the rhythm of our lives, or maybe we don't like the rhythm of our lives, but we have an ideal about what that rhythm might look like that's normal. The New Testament is loaded with reality checks regarding the church's future. And that there once again will be a a great calamity or a a difficulty. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, Luke 21, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Timothy 3 are just a few places in the New Testament that paint that picture. And whether that calamity begins to occur in our generation or generations to come, we would be smart to heed our Bibles, the word of our, our rescuer. They're exhortations to be wise and informed and and ready. So what I would like to do with this closing portion of Scripture is just take five glances or pictures of what oppression looks like so that we can just uh, analyze that, see it in the text, see it among many different snapshots of oppression from this text and say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to fall for that one. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Number one. I'm going to try to race through these. Oppression often aims itself at controlling our most valuable possession. If your life is your most valuable possession, an oppressor need only to have the power to take your life to begin to control you. The key for us in this generation and generations to come is to look backwards to see the men and the women that, that paved the way for, for the gospel to be known like we know it, who laid down their lives for the sake of God, who committed themselves entirely to him, who said, my life is not more important than my God to me. And the way that we practice that family daily, the way that I practice that, as I consider all that I love in life, my family, my my beautiful wife, my two boys, um, my life with you. And I consider uh, 
having to lay that down for the sake of still holding on to my God. And I think that that practicing for us is a good thing too. Five glances at oppression. The oppressor focuses on lying to you about your identity and dismantling your community, your family, reducing you to the status of an enslaved individual. He wants to push you in the dark all alone. So amazing that Jesus' response to that oppression is to speak, as we've already seen, to the nation of Israel, identity. You're my firstborn son. But 1 John 3, 1 through 3, says the same exact message to you and me. See what the great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is it did not know him. Dear friends, now we're children of God, and what will be has not been made known yet. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope purify themselves as he is pure. You know, the greatest leading indicator for me as I'm meeting with people in my office of whether somebody's really growing in their life with God is how much their life is being shaped by uh, the message of God, the identity of God, the word of God how much they're following um, that, that new uh, identity that God's put in uh, their lives and how much they're walking away from, how well they're walking away from the voice of their past. Some of you need to walk away and ask God to help you walk away from the voice of your past, the voice of the world and the voice of the evil one. Third snapshot of oppression The oppressor then tries to replace God as your best option for survival. I mean, just look at chapter 5, verse 15. We've got uh, an example of this in Technicolor right in our passage. Then the foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, Why do you deal this way with who? Your servants. They wrongly perceived Pharaoh as the shortest path to their own deliverance. It's a snare, a trap, a hole to fall into. We need to steer clear of it. Number four, the oppressor then has to do nothing other than increase your labor, the amount that you're doing, your workload in order to get your focus off of how to escape and onto just how to manage or survive. Look at verse 9. Let the labor be heavier on the men and let them work at it so that they'll pay no attention to these false words. You see, Pharaoh uses labor to cause or to attempt or attract God's people to, towards despising the very words that could set them free. Does that happen to you? Verse 12 so that people, the God's people, scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw, increased labor. Last point, and then we'll be done. Last snapshot. From this point forward, the oppressor manages you by providing for your most basic needs, food, shelter, water, and keeping your labor at a long-term manageable level. Well, this seems crazy. 
But you know what? If you are willing to look ahead to Exodus 16.3, you see that in all the hardship in the wilderness, grumbling occurred among the nation of Israel when they looked back with fondness to what was provided for them by Pharaoh in Egypt. Say this, we sat by our own pots of meat, we ate bread to the full. Now you've brought us out, Moses, into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You see, we need to make a choice, and many of you have made a choice. Take God's word, his identity, his promise, his salvation. Accept it as your own. You want to take it as far as he'll allow you to take it. For you, I just want to shout at the top of my lungs. There are some of us in this room who are sliding, who are tenders, but who desperately need to have God come meet us in our place of slumber and wake us up and help us live for bigger things in our lives. I'm going to close by saying this. Family, don't be confused. I mean, the the road signs along the road are of our lives are very clear. And today we have two characters that we could follow. Moses, who was a servant of God himself. And Pharaoh, they both had staffs, didn't they? But for one, the staff shouted royalty. For Moses, poverty. One communicated authority and demanded that all bow down before it. The other, obscurity. One was wielded by a king, the other a shepherd. One was used to strike, the other was used to save. One was covered in gold, the other covered in the work of the day. One is wielded by the power of a man. The other was filled with the very power of God. And today, would you close your eyes, please? Where are you? If this is your moment where you would stand before God, are you a man or a woman that that, uh, could look him in the eyes and say, "Um, as broken and as imperfect as I am, I am yours. And Jesus, I just beg you, I call out to you, Lord. If we have you, we have Everything. We have the wealth of the nations, the God of the universe. Without you, we have nothing. And I just beg you for this family. uh, Would you allow all the good that's here to continue? Would you allow the work that you've begun in us to be completed. Would you allow us to hunger for mercy and know our need? And we bless you. Thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen.